Hello everyone, welcome back to Alfie Bunga Bunga. This is Alex Hochuli in Sao Paulo, Brazil. It's Tuesday, the 21st of September. Uh, George Hoare is away, but I'm joined by Philip Cunliffe as usual. Hello, Philip. Hey, Alexander, and... how's it going? <laughs> Good, we should use our, which maybe should use our surnames as well. Um, and uh... We can stick to professional titles, Mr. Hochuli. I'm doing very well. How are you? Mm, yes, no, very well. Thank you. Uh, and uh, thank, you, thank you, what? Thank you, what? Um, I, Phil. Um, <laughs> And we uh, are joined, uh, well, once again, by Dominic Leuster. Uh, Dominic is a researcher at the LSE in London and at Desernat Zukunft, uh, the Institute for Macrofinance in Berlin. Hello, Dominic, uh, Mr. Leuster. How's it going, uh, Mr. Hockley and Dr. Cunliffe? Yeah, well, there we go. Yeah. Germans respect professional titles. <laughs> yes, especially when they're authentic and weren't attained by plagiarism. Yeah, yeah, indeed, yeah. Indeed. I was surprised to learn actually about how many German politicians uh, have plagiarized their academic CVs because I thought that was a Brazilian specialty. And, and uh, it's good to know that Germany does it too. And I'm sure actually lots of Brazilians will be pleased to hear that uh, the Germans that they look up to also do it. Um, which actually, uh, a bit of foreshadowing about what we're going to be talking about. Uh, because we are talking about uh, Germany's elections, which are coming up this weekend, and uh, which should be a pretty epochal election, and the emphasis on should, because um, it's obviously the first uh, election which will not result in Merkel as the chancellor since uh, 2005. And it's also the first time uh, there's no incumbent chancellor leading her party for re-election. And you know, we've obviously been coming off the back of what some people have called the populist decade. Uh, and Ge Germany still seems relatively unchallenged by any populist upsurges. Just a little bit of other notes for context. It's also the first major and truly post-COVID election. I think the, the US election last year was still really in the midst of the pandemic. Um, Canada had an election yesterday, but um, that was a bit of a damn squib, which uh, just returned the status quo ante. And, uh, and Germany, obviously, is, is far more important than, than Canada. Sorry, Canadian listeners. Um, but we have a lot more, I think, German listeners. So, you know, I'm just playing to the crowd here. Um, but anyway, so, you know, the, the questions you could ask about this election, it would seem would be, well, is this going to be a continuation or, the, or an acceleration of the populist decade? Will it lead to some sort of technocratic restoration? Will it lead to something else? But instead, it seems like continuity uh, is on the cards. So, uh, Dominic, you're German. Why is Germany so boring? Yeah, no, it's, it's hard. Um, now it looks like that, you know, the world is sort of once again waiting for a revolution in Germany and, you know, Bidenism is, is a, just a rearguard action. But if you look at the last um, 15, 16 years, it, it didn't, you didn't expect this, of course, because as you say, they were extraordinarily boring um, for Germans, at least, for those who follow German politics. Uh, the consequences of German politics for the rest of Europe and for the world in some regard weren't that boring, unfortunately. Um, I think part of the answer to your question is uh, how has Germany bucked some of the big political trends that we've seen in other countries? One of them is surely party political fragmentation, reductification, as some people call it, and you know, widespread polarization at the same time, societally, uh, in, in the public discourse and around certain topics. Um, and it seems as though they've bucked the trend, but in, what you might conclude is that they have quite a few different problems and that they've just found ways to postpone the consequences of those problems. Yeah. And so on. 
So, I mean, looking at the election, which is obviously coming up in a couple of days, um, we're just having a look at uh, the polls, the kind of long-term poll trackers. And there's a remarkable sort of U-shape during the pandemic, you know, literally from kind of early 2020, from I assume from around March 2020 to around March 2021, where the CDU... Uh, the main center-right party, uh, along with its coalition partners, the CSU, has seen a huge bump, um, you know, massively leading the field, while the Greens and the uh, neoliberal AFD weigh down. And I guess these can be seen in, in some ways as, well, sort of uh, protest parties of the left and the right. But now uh, the CDU has fallen back down again. And actually the SPD, the Social Democrats, are uh, leading the polls and looking to form a government. So, well, I guess, first of all, how, how has this come about? What, what's behind this uh, SPD surge? I think you have to explain both the SPD, the, the sudden surge in the SPD's vote share and why it had been so low before and why, why there hadn't been that much fluctuation in normal times. As you point out, there's this strange bump for the CDU during the COVID crisis, which you simply attribute to you know, rallying around the flag and yeah, um, yeah. German political sentiments are you know, strongly influenced by a need for stability. No one embodies that as much as Merkel and sort of the main line of Christian democratic you know, CDU politics. So that you might just explain away as an aberration, but why hasn't this, why have the vote shares not changed that much over the last decade and why suddenly this huge change? And I think Part of it is, is what I really tried to allude to, and that there's a great deal of convergence around certain issues in the center in Germany. So that's, for one, explained perhaps why social democracy um, you know, ha- was in a bit of a rut until recently, because the, the SPD had lost quite a few of its traditional voters wh- when they moved to the center. And uh, you know, this, the, the kind of center, center-based consensus politics does breed a certain disinterest in politics. And so people don't really care too much about, um, about voting and, and, and they don't think about the, the, the decision, decisions too much. But then once there is an election, it's sort of a race to be the least popular or the least unpopular party because you're not really campaigning on, um, on issues that much as, as more... Uh, as much as you're campaigning on who can project um, this image of stability more than anyone else and who can who needs to be punished, so to say. And in this case, because the CDU had blundered a bit towards the end of the crisis, namely by um, enacting some lockdown measures which were very seen as rather over the top, being embroiled in a uh, you know scandal regarding the procurement of masks, and so on and so on and so forth. And of course, the election of their candidates, Armin Laschet, who is the president of the state of Northern Westphalia, which is the most populous state in Germany, and who was seen as a bit of a dud and who committed a series of gaffes, including laughing at, he was seen laughing in the background at, at um, while attending a press conference for the flood victims uh, in Northern Westphalia, his state. There was an emergency press conference and he was seen laughing at the back um, and, and that didn't sit well with quite a few voters. And I think there was a collective but, feeling that the CDU had to be punished as well. I mean, so, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. I mean, just reading the reporting on, you know, kind of the lead up to the election, that the reasons given for why the CDU has kind of fallen in the polls and also the Greens is because of these little gaffes. And it seems 
I mean, it kind of remarkably minor sorts of little things, which has caused fluctuations in the polls. Um, so yeah. it does seem to be really so based just around a projection of image and, and particularly an image of, of competence, which is something that feels very sort of 90s and 2000s, I suppose. And I, I wanted to add to that, I guess, um, Dominic, which is the, so if, I guess to, yeah, Alex's question first, I suppose, is um, the question of, is it just about image? And if so, then is the, is Olaf Scholz, who's leading the SPD, and the bookies um, say is the most likely um, candidate to replace Merkel, is his image based on trying to be as close to Merkel as possible then? Is that why he's likely to win? It's surely both. I mean, surely he's trying to um, you know, triangulate in the way he's trying to both project uh, himself as the you know a continuation of Merkelism, and he's actually very explicitly done so by um, you know, emulating that strange gesture that Merkel makes with her hands. Um, she, she oh yeah, we're going to come on to this. We're going to come on yeah. to this. <laughs> um, the, the, the Merkel triangle, so to say, and he's he's done that on on um, election board. For some reason, election billboards in Germany are just huge faces of the candidates uh, rather than slogans or images. It's, it's a bit creepy, but one of them featured Olaf Scholz doing the Merkel gesture. On the other hand, uh, he is also very explicitly speaking about left, nominally left-wing policies or traditionally social democratic sort of um, mainstream policies such as a 12 euro minimum wage, higher investments, uh, you know, investment into climate um, you know, decarbonization and, and all those things. And both of, those, both of those things seem to be working. And it's a question, which is the bait and switch um, in the end? So, because at, at some point, mechanism 2.0 is incompatible with fiscal reforms and getting serious on climate change. However, however, if you do look at the polls, there are polls that you know, the questions are, would you have voted for the SPD if the um, the candidate of the CDU, so of the Christian Democrats, had been someone else. In this case, the uh, the ministerial president of Bavaria, uh, his name is Zurda. Had it been Zurda, for instance, uh, Scholz would not be currently leading the race. So it's quite oh, right. an open so question. And, and it's quite. It seems kind of relatively personalized for um, for the sort of the system that Germany has, right? Um, personalized at the same time as the personalities themselves are fairly gray, right? I mean, I guess, I don't know if you can characterize, um, you know, some of these other, some of the other kind of uh, party leaders, maybe the, of the Greens uh, for starters. I mean, who, who sort of, what, what sort of politicians are these? Or, or is, it, is it easy enough just to say, listen, they're kind of just, uh, sort of gray non-entities? Can I just interrupt though before that? So picking up on this point about the the posters the billboards with the enormous faces so it is very much then an election driven by image and personality rather than by there's no meaningful policy dispute is that right uh the, so so what has to be understood is that on the center right in germany so the, the conservative core of christian democratic voters doesn't seem to care that much about politics because progressive politics is difficult in Germany, and I think that at least part, in part explains the convergence around the centre, which in turn explains why the elections and the fluctuations and polling are driven by these minor issues, because there's nothing really, there's nothing meaty to actually um, yeah. contest. Um, if you ask, for instance, now, this is, anec this is anecdata, 
Um, but if you go to you know, northern Bavaria, which is profoundly conservative, um, they ha- are having problems voting for Armin Laschet, the current uh, candidate of the CDU, because they think he's a dud and they think he's uncharismatic. And certainly not Merkel. He doesn't have Merkel isn't charismatic, but she has this gravitas and she's by any standard a very competent politician and she projects power. So people want a powerful man or woman who can guarantee stability and who can guarantee that nothing much changes. So I think on the right, on the center right, issues don't really matter that much, but they seem to matter more on the center left. Hence the what might be lip service to minimum wage and investment, what might be um, meaningful policy uh, ambitions, we don't know yet. Uh, oh, as for Alex's question about um, the, the, who are these people? So, so Armin Laschet is, as I said, he, he's sort of a, uh, he's not, I, I mean, he's not terribly uncharismatic, I would say, but he's not, um, he's sort of a, a typical Rhinelander, I think people would say. So he's a bit laconic, sort of a bit, um, certainly can be witty and can crack a joke, but as we saw that sort of, that tendency is what perhaps cost him the election because he was apparently <laughs> cracking jokes in the, in the background right, where people yeah. were mourning the dead. Uh, Olaf Scholz is um, originally from Lower Saxony, but he grew up in Hamburg and he's um, stereotypically a Hamburgian in the sense that he's quite dry, very conservative in a way. He doesn't really say much. He's, he's a bit um, yeah, phlegmatic, if you want. Um, and he, he's the conservative, you know, bourgeois conservative wing of the Social Democrats, who used to be radical in his youth, of course, but now has sort of matured. And he's been, he was the mayor of uh, Hamburg, which is a very, the, the, it's the richest city in Germany, but it's a merchant city. So he, he, he's very much the face of the SPD that you can sell to, the German mainstream. I, I read him described today as a as as if he looked as if he was lost leaving an accountants convention. <laughs> which, <laughs> that's good. Which uh, sounds pretty damning, um, at least in terms of projection. Yeah, but I feel like that's language. that's um, that's quite a, quite a lot of Germans, too, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but, I wasn't going to uh, say no, it. No, yeah, yeah. no, that's true. He, he so he doesn't. He's not quite uh, um, in terms of you know on the spectrum of. Um, uncharismatic. He isn't quite Hermann von Rumpoy. You know, I don't know whether you remember him. Uh, terribly, un- you know, Farage famously called, said that he had the charisma of a wet rag. Uh, but he's not very charismatic either. It's true. And I wouldn't say I would say the same of Anna Baerbock, who's the the leader of the Greens. She, of course, the Greens are they're quite a you know bourgeois party, if you like, and they've they've been in coalitions on the state level with the CDU. But they're a bit more young. I think the average age of politicians is, is, is quite a bit lower. And she, I think, can be, she can come across as a bit more animated and confident and interesting. And she's, she's done so, she's come across that way in the recent uh, televised debates between the three candidates. But none of them, I, I think that while the campaign is driven by personalities, personalities, it's not the most charismatic personality that wins it might actually be the most boring personality because that's mm. anything, that, anything that's that isn't boring might be suspicious to voters. In a way. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, yeah, that is that is quite interesting, despite evidently being uh, not that enthusing um, if, if you're following the election. Um, but we should maybe turn a little bit um, and I guess we can round off talking a little bit more about um, talking about what's likely to happen a little bit later on. But we should uh, look backwards now, I guess, at uh, Merkel, because Merkel uh, has this astonishing longevity, um, outlived so many other uh so many other personalities and uh, on the on the political stage, uh, both Europe, Europe wide and as and beyond that as well. Um, what I guess just for for starters, I guess what has made her such a resilient figure? I mean, people always describe her as sort of Teflon Merkel and so on. Um, where does she draw her power from? Uh, does she have a particular power base? I mean, I, I understand that she kind of made the her CDU into a fairly big tent party. So, I mean, I don't know. Can you sum up what explains her longevity? I mean, first, for context, German politicians' chances tend to have very long terms. So there's no term limits, um, so no constitutionally prescribed term limit, nor is they. Nor is there some sort of gentleman's agreement on just running, you know, 10 years or something like that. And many former chancellors have been in office for quite a while, including Merkel's um, mentor, in a way, Helmut Kohl, who was in office for, I think, 15 or 16 years as well. And she was, I believe, the Minister for Women and Youth in, in the early 90s for Helmut Kohl, and then the Minister for the Environment. Um before she became, I think, one of the state-level party leaders. I mean, so, so that puts a different complexion, but, but even for that, for, for German politics, she has proven herself quite resilient. I think the first question, the, the first answer to that question is, you know, she's just a very competent politician, first of all. I mean, one has to grant her that, even if you're coming from a left uh, perspective, uh, the same way you have to grant Margaret Thatcher for being a very competent politician. In other words, she knows how to react to situations. She knows how to maneuver herself through crises, and not just in the way that people tend to talk about her, um, not just in the, in the Teflon way. She, she reacts to accusations and, and, and scandals by simply giving some sort of equivocating answer and changing the topic. And she's so convincingly that nothing can actually stick to her, as he said. But she, she's quite adept at doing things behind the scenes as well. So just to give you an example, during the, the European debt crisis, and I think we'll get back to this topic eventually, because it does, it does cut, it, it does sort of, uh, it's emblematic of her entire legacy. She, you know, she gave Wolfgang Schäuble, who was then the finance minister of Germany, a mandate to, um, engage in negotiations with the Greek government, then led by, you know, Syriza, the far-left government. And she said, you know, you, you um, negotiate with your counterpart, Yanis Varoufakis, and I'll be on the sidelines. But if that didn't work out too well, of course. There were, um, Varoufakis was not someone to give in, apparently, and he, he had a strong bond with um, the Greek prime minister, and what she then decided to do is to sort of go behind their backs and invite the Greek prime minister to, to dinner at some, you know, she, she booked an entire restaurant in Frankfurt and just sat down there with, um, you know, Tsipras and a few other people um, just to make him feel part of the process. She basically seduced him in a way. 
Um, he, she promised him, you know, a purchase on what would happen in the, in the uh, debt agreement, uh, the memorandum, which was eventually signed. She, she lulled him into a false sense of, uh, of security so that she could isolate him from Varoufakis, which in the end is what proved decisive because after the referendum in, Greek, in Greece, Sipas uh, said, you know, we're not going to go with it. And he did yeah. sign under the dotted line. And that was Merkel in the background, which can be quite adept at sort of, you know, public being in the public eye being very unassuming and sort of, you know, conservative, steering away from scandals, but behind the scenes, she's quite adept. I think that's... But I think what, what, what's interesting part of it. there is that, yeah, I mean, as you say, kind of can be quite adept and devious even uh, working behind the scenes. But I mean, you mentioned Margaret Thatcher, you know, also as a competent politician, but Thatcher was a very radical figure who took on her enemies uh, head on. And Merkel seems to be an altogether different sort of sort of character, more maneuvering, shifting from one side to the other, no especially strong ideological convictions by the looks of it, more just sort of managing and sidestepping um, and and rearranging things so, so that nothing really particularly changes, mainly holding things in place. And so, I mean, in, in that regard, I'm wondering whether there's a better comparison to her than Margaret Thatcher, for example. Um, if there, if you can, I don't know if there's anyone who strikes you as being a comparable figure to Merkel in terms of... I, I could say um, someone like Shinzo Abe, perhaps. People do make mm. a comparison, do strike a comparison between German and Japanese politics as it has the same emphasis on stability. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't actually... Um, end up as very stable in the sense that you have many different governments and many different prime ministers, but the 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 electoral preference for stability and someone who can project it, and for someone who is essentially post ideological, is is there. And you're right in saying that Margaret Thatcher was deeply ideologically motivated and in a way prepared to make it rain on everyone, even some of the Tory party's um, old constituencies. Whereas Merkel is sort of the opposite. I mean, you know, friend, your friend of the show, uh, Wolfgang Strake, um, once describes uh, Merkel as the perfect postmodern politician because she doesn't actually stand for very much. And her most radical actions are those that change everything, they keep everything the same. Yeah. To the extent that you can sum up her legacy over the last 10 years, it's only enacting change if it's necessary to keep everything the same. So you have that. Um, that you know, leopard principle that you talked about with Adam Tews in your recent um, episode, that at some point the establishment has to enact change just to maintain uh, yeah. their grip on power. And I think that um, it also makes it so suitable to German politics because the way the system is built up, the federal system, it makes political action very costly. And a politician that can still maintain power in, in that system is Merkel because she's so cautious to begin with and she doesn't require you know bold pivoting and big issues to actually stay in power one so one thing which is i suppose slightly more um not tangential but i wonder how important it is to understanding her political persona um is uh the fact that she's a woman obviously and also the um, the persona that was kind of uh, created by some of uh, by some of her supporters in a very knowing and again I suppose postmodern and ironic way was the idea of her as Mutti um, or uh, the diminutive for mother in German. Um, so 
how important is that you think that kind of protective embrace the caring maternal figure who keeps kind of the domestic household you know runs domestic household affairs very competently might do some things in the background is in charge of the finances but you can rely on her and she's um, not glamorous um, she's not charismatic like you say but she's serious and dependable um, is that i mean it seems to me it must be very important but i don't know if perhaps that's just um being perhaps overly psychologistic in trying to understand her enduring kind of strength over the last 15 years well, there's, there's, sorry well no and just attack something on there i mean i think also very much as a mother figure and not as a father i mean it's she's not the one laying down the law right establishing rules it's far more kind of flexible working in the background well in the way that phil described very well and also you know you mentioned earlier the miracle uh well, the rhombus that she does with her with her fingers. Yeah. And if you've ever seen, I think we'll, the, the cover image for this episode, we'll have a picture of that. So uh, listeners, you can check that out. But, you know, kind of it's a way that kind of uh, politicians who are obviously coached and uh, have media trained and so on, you know, just learn to be like, OK, I'm going to keep my hands like this so that I when I appear on camera, I'm not going to be waving my arms around or looking awkward, not knowing what to do with my arms. But it, someone suggested this to me the other day, and it does seem to be right that it's a womb. The, the, the thing that she's doing is the shape of a womb right in front of where her womb would be. So it's just recapitulating that that sort of maternal imagery. Uh, yeah, well, from my style, that would be too psychologistic, to be honest. But it's, it's a funny take. And uh, it's kind of bizarre because it does seem like something that's perfectly sort of um, stage managed. Like she has some motivational coach at some point or public speaking coach who told her do something with your hands because it looks awkward if you don't know what to do with them but that's not unique to her I mean even someone like Barack Obama who's obviously sort of a born public speaker um, he used to have that gesture with his fists I don't know whether you remember he would just punctuate whatever he said with clenched fists with his thumb sticking out slightly so that, that's sort of a thing that every, every politician nowadays has sort of a gimmick and I, I wouldn't rate the importance of that rhombus too highly but it is true that this mutti image so that the caring image does seem to play a big role and I think you could attribute it at least in part to some you know somewhat repressed form of nationalism and a repressed sort of fear of the outside world in a way it's a very insular society and I think this came through in some of the recent debates that there were barely any discussions of, of geopolitics and foreign policy and um, Europe even. I mean, you would expect mm. at least Europe to be on their, on, their, yeah. on their agenda. Foreign policy, not so much. Not many countries actually, you know, talk about foreign policy in their elections, say for the United States, perhaps, for obvious reasons. But I would say that part of the reason why she was able to project that stature as a protective and caring figure is because Germany became so powerful in her uh, during her tenure, which in turn has nothing to do with what she did. I mean, if anything, yeah. she weakened Germany. So the simple fact that by virtue of having the euro, by virtue of the reforms that were enacted in the, in the years pre preceding her reign, by her, her rival Gerhard Schroeder, in fact, and, and including um, you know, some of the people who are now on the left, like Wolfgang Streck as well, those reforms really set the, the scene for Germany to become an economic superpower. 
and to have more geopolitical clout to throw around. And that in turn made Germans think that Germany was rising again or have it was you know safe and more powerful. There, there was a constant polling. Do you think that Merkel has made um, Germany more powerful, more safe? And people overwhelmingly vote yes. And people overwhelmingly say that's important to them as well. But now what you see, if you, if you ask um, the centre-right, roughly speaking, and the centre-left, how do you see the trend in Germany? The centre-right will say, uh, if I'm not mistaken, they will see Germany as declining. And since left foot, it's the opposites. So that 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 consensus has, has somehow changed during mm, Merkel's Merkel tenure. People tend to tend to think that Germany was doing better and that they were becoming more prosperous as a country and being more safe. And I think the, the crisis has uh, broken that consensus. And I think Merkel may or may not be able to even uh, she wouldn't perhaps be successful in the in the coming ten years if she could stay on. So German, so German kind of power. In this particular moment, and for reasons that I guess are historically obvious, it has to be expressed. Um, I, su I suppose at the European level, it has to be kind of packaged in a European cosmopolitan supranational way rather than German self-assertion. And I guess what you're suggesting also is that the it also has to be packaged in a feminine way. Um, and that too is part of um, part of it, the part of its uh, effect, I suppose. Is that right? That I don't know. Um, I mean, I'm far from an expert in those things. Uh, I, I could imagine that the fact that yeah, you know, one associates, you know, conservatively speaking, one associates caring with mothers and mother yeah. figures, and you know, discipline and harshness with father figures, and Germans do tend to care about sound money politics and and um, you know, keeping debt in, in check, and they had a very severe father during most of Merkel's reign, that was the finance minister. So that, that yeah. she was, mm. I think, a quite deliberately kept us, I mentioned it before, that she gave Wolfgang Schäuble a mandate uh, yeah. to negotiate the debt crisis so that she would be unaffected from the blowout. Unlike Schäuble, who is no longer finance minister and who was eventually reigned back by her during, yeah. due to his comport, uh, his, his acting in the crisis. So I think that she was able to separate herself from those more unpopular perhaps but also necessary sort of if you want to call it fatherly uh, demanding disciplinary actions yeah it's fa it's fascinating i suppose to me at least is the i mean you know she's i think i mean i can't think of any other female politician of her longevity and stature in recent times um the only kind of I think comparable person would be Benazir Bhutto. And, you know, obviously she was assassinated some years back. Um, and so it's fascinating to me how, um, what are the kind of roles that are available to female politicians in the contemporary Western context, at least. And she seems to have um, found one, you know, that suits not only suits not only her constituency, her voters, but also seems to have worked effectively for Germany abroad as well. Um, and there's so many kind of, uh, there's so many, I would say, even when critical, nonetheless respectful um, accounts of her from abroad in the international press. I think that's uh, telling to some degree of um, nobody seems to be able to quite pin down what is the basis of her political appeal. It, um, it, took, indeed, it, took, she... it took a Berlusconi to say something bad about her words I probably shouldn't repeat. 
But uh, well, now that you've started, Alex, you can hardly not. Well, you can hardly stop, I mean, can you? And, and you know, I, I have to say, I'm not endorsing these words. But he called her an unfuckable fat ass um, some years back, which I think that I mean, I don't think he said this directly to the press, but it was <laughs> overheard anyway. Um, but anyway, I guess that proves proves Phil's point. You know, it's exactly. I should say though. Just to, to to add some some nuance to that story, she only very recently in the last weeks came out as a feminist. She never used that term mm. um, to herself, and I think when she was elected, I, I seem to remember this that it was it was certainly noted that she was the country's first female leader, but it was never that much of an issue throughout her entire reign. I mean. She, I'm sure some, you know, enterprising journalist or academic wrote some hagiography about her and uh, had a few chapters on how she, you know, represents something about you know, female politics. But she's a very competent politician and that's how she was seen. She was never really seen as, you know, a standard bearer for, for female politicians around the world. It was never really yeah. that much of an issue because yeah. those kind of identity politics are still, I think, a big turnoff for most German especially conservative German voters. So I'm quite surprised that she actually came out now as a feminist, but partly because she's no longer running for office. No, indeed. And I guess that reinforces the uh, point about her maternal kind of appeal. Um, she can't, she doesn't need to be an ident, you know, kind of, she doesn't need to wave the flag for feminism because it's all the understated um, maternal image. But in any case, yeah, she just... succeeded where, where other women have failed in Germany. I mean, the current... Uh, Commission president is Ursula, Ursula von der Leyen, yes, who's of course, uh, yes. yeah, also a right. very successful politician in Germany. In, in that she was very high level, but she uh, catastrophically failed as defense minister, and she was pushed to Brussels as most politicians are, who are yeah. who fail at home. And she didn't manage that. Neither did her original successor, the AKK. Uh, AKK. She also had the same problem. So it's not just about her being a woman; it's just about yeah. her. Yeah. Her um, persona in general, I suppose. Yeah, and so, I think actually that's really interesting, her success compared to other um, German female politicians whose stars seem to be rising and then um, were cut short. But I guess, I mean, we, we can move on to thinking about some of um, what some of the most significant aspects of her term in office. And the line in the FT is um, the Financial Times was from the sick man of Europe to the second Wirtschaftswunder referring to the post-war German economic miracle and German, Germany recovered from uh, from the war. So how far is that? Um, I mean, you've mentioned already that she benefited, I suppose, from the economic reforms that were made under her predecessor Gerhard Schroeder but how how significant is that economic transformation of Germany during her term in office the the transformation itself is quite significant in that Germany was doing quite poorly after reunification it was doing quite poorly um, even after the dot-com crisis which people forget actually did lead to a small recession in Germany and it was around the time of the where the that, that new phase of globalization was really kicking off, and as an export economy, it's highly sensitive to you know global um, competitive disinflation. So remaining competitive also on a you know cost competitiveness level. In other words, it had to. It felt the, the German elites felt like they had to do some harsh reforms, including 
you know, labor market reforms to remain competitive, to avoid you know, long-term structural permanent unemployment. And I actually, you know, somewhat unusually for a sort of a lefty economist, think that the German model is actually quite successful in that sense that it managed to overcome this distribution, this, this, this coordination failure in the distribution of adjustment pain. Uh, in other words, it, it could have led to high unemployment, but what we got instead was um, a labor market that was um, dualized. In other words, you have this whole mass of um, this new part of the labor market, which is cut out of the permanent contracts and unionized jobs, which is, has these flexible contracts, et cetera, et cetera, which is lower paid and which has accepted sort of a permanent wage cut or a lid on wages in general. That, if you credit that um, with the recovery in the first decade uh, of, of, the, of the century, then it has nothing to do with Merkel, of course, because th those things were done before her time. Yeah, the hard sphere reform, labor market reforms, as they're called. Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, apart, I mean, you can, how the way I look at Merkel is not, it, it's very misleading to look at Germany's performance in that time. You have to look at what was the potential growth and uh, on which, like, which path dependencies did her policy um, create for Germany. And I think then the, the, um, it's an overwhelmingly negative uh, term because she, the most consequential aspect of her policy of her her term in office is that she oversaw the lowest level of net public investments uh, mm. in post-war German history. Essentially, yeah. net public investment stagnated. It, it was more or less at zero. So, so the 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 net investment into fixed capital um, that includes infrastructure, includes digital infrastructures, you know, schools um, and all those things, utilities. Um, during a period in which Germany was very fiscally sound, had a lot of fiscal space, a lot of capacity to spend, and in which uh, interest rates on German bonds was incredibly low, and now, in fact, um, large part of the yield curve um, is, neg uh, is negative. So in other words, they get paid for holding investors' money, and even if they if interest rates weren't negative, they would probably make up the spending from debt financing would actually make up for itself because it would cause. Um, sufficient growth to, you know, cancel out the, the higher debt burden. And this is an extraordinary waste of potential, of course, and it has yeah. all sorts of consequences distributionally within Germany, but of course, for Europe and for the world as a whole. I mean, recall the, the extraordinary, I mean, we don't, tend to, we don't tend to think about this in, in the context of the, of the 2008 crisis, but only China at that point was guaranteeing some global demand to prop up the global yes. economy which had fallen off a cliff. Obama stimulus was famously too small as a result of you know, congressional politics, and there was no stimulus in what was then still the largest trading block in the world, the largest economic block, the yeah. Eurozone, and it is largely on account of, you know, in fiscal policy terms, on the consensus that's led by Germany that we shouldn't spend. And that really... Um, so just yeah. so we will talk about I want to talk a bit more about that. But just before that, I suppose I wanted if you could talk a bit about the the experience of ordinary Germans in this period. So you've mentioned the dualization of the labor market, but and um, wage stagnation, average wages are stagnant and there's been um, kind of sluggish productivity growth. So I, employment has remained high. 
Um, and you mentioned the lack of public investment and Wolfgang Streeck on a previous episode has mentioned the fact of uh, kind of the decay of Germany's public infrastructure, which is quite striking in the context of um, in Germany's economic reputation. So I suppose if, is there, how, so what does ordinary life feel like for Germans in this period? So they feel kind of secure, um, but hard done by, or were they, you know, were they content despite the fact that wages were stagnant, but everyone felt they had a job and there was, um, and they felt uh, more or less secure under Merkel's stewardship. Well, and just to tack something on there as well, because I mean, despite uh, high labor force participation, lots of women in the workforce, a lot of it's, from my understanding, part time and precarious. So I mean, and as you've said, you know, this kind of dualized labor market. So just another element to tack on to, to Phil's question. Well, yeah, I mean, it's important to put it in perspective. And, um, you know, yes, you, you, you did, th these reforms did create a second, a sort of a second labor market in which people had non-unionized jobs mainly, were, were sort of, were more precarious, as you say. So there's so-called zero-hour contracts in which you might not make any income. You have no guaranteed um, um, income. You had, as a crisis response, a lot of sort of, semi-furloughing, I'm not sure how it would be called in English, but we call it Kurzarbeit. In other words, people would just accept a cut in the hours worked. And that's sort of the, 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 the bargain that you, you're not laid off, but you, you accept just a, a huge cut in your wages, um, but you don't have to work either. And that's, I think, as I said, not a bad thing um, overall, because the, how other countries handle it is just simply to lay off more people, to allow for that to happen. But there has been a huge lid on wages um, regardless. I mean, in recent years, in the last few years, there have been some successful demands for higher wages by the large unions, but overall there has been quite a firm lid. And I think German business has been quite clear about why essentially, you know, for ger the German manufacturing worker, the third world begins 100 kilometers east of Berlin, in other words. So because they were able to extend their manufacturing uh, supply line into Eastern Europe, um, they have far more leverage in negotiations and they de depend on that cheap pool of labor, but they also use it um, to keep quite a heavy lid on wages, as I said. And as a result, you see the household share of income. So the share of income by you know, the, the household sector of total uh, national income increasing, decreasing quite a bit, which, which means that profits are quite, um, yeah. quite severely up, which in turn means that the savings rate is much higher because these people don't spend their money. So um, just to be clear, so the basis then of your, of your um, criticism of Merkel's tenure then is um, not so much the dualization of the labor market per se, but rather the fact that they haven't, um, they haven't actually spent any of the um, they haven't invested publicly in the way that they could have given the state of German finances and interest rates and so on, as you said, and also the fact that um, wages have been kept so low. Is that right? Yes. And, and what that means essentially is that there's no public investment and no private investment yes. because the savings are so high and they go into saving assets and positional goods like housing. And that in turn increases wealth inequality quite uh, severely. So one of the stylized facts about Germany that it has incredibly high levels of wealth inequality, comparable even to the United States, which you don't, which you don't expect from a European country, which are generally, All right. you know, my, my, our mutual friend uh, Anton Jäger likes to say that 
the European wing of the Grand Hotel Abyss a slightly better run than the US one. And you expect lower inequality, but in Germany, wealth inequality is indeed very high. Although you could still chalk that up to people not really owning their own house. But income inequality is also actually very high if you look at the pre-tax levels. In other words, a lot of income uh, incomes have actually stagnated while the upper tier of incomes has increased. However, at the moment, um, it seems as though the welfare state is still doing its job in, in reshuffling that. But it's still quite it's still quite striking that pre-tax sort of market income is incredibly unequal, again, quite comparable to that of the United States. So while it might it may have not felt as bad to live in Germany under Merkel as it might have felt under, let's say, Obama or, or, or you know, in any other comparable um, you know, Western European country or maybe Canada or the United States, because they were basically at full employment, right? And there is still a quite a, a generous welfare state. But the trend, I think, was seen by large parts of the working class and the lower middle class as at least stagnant at the, you know, at worst, uh, declining. So this takes us on to the question of Germany's role in, which we've touched upon already, Germany's role in the Eurozone debt crisis um, and how it links to Merkel's failure of leadership. Um, so from my point of view, and this is a, I mean, this is a conversation I've had with people in Britain was, um, and the, on the base and part of the basis of my support for Brexit was the lack of any possibility for actual, for supranational integration in the European Union. Um, that the failure to kind of construct any kind of uh, further political union and fiscal union to complement the, the Eurozone was part of the reason that I um, swung decisively in favour of Brexit because you know, I felt the moment for it, if there was ever a moment for it, it was um, in the wake of the debt crisis, um, in two, beginning in 2008 and going on into 2015 and 16. Um, so I wondered if you could talk a bit about um, Merkel's political failure and perhaps if it is indeed her greatest, um, the, her greatest political failure and perhaps her most important lasting legacy was her failure to meaningfully reform or make an effort to reform the Eurozone. My view was always, I was, you know, if something had been, if a blueprint had been on the table, I would have been willing to discuss it, but um, nothing was ever offered. I think that's, um, there, there's a paradox in, in European politics, which is that it requires a great deal of coordination and you know, solidarity to integrate further because it always involves some degree of risk sharing and some degree of um, even distribution at some point, you know, opening up your labor markets to competition, et cetera, and accepting freedom of movement. But paradoxically, when that coordination and that solidarity is needed most during crises, it is uh, the hardest to come by because these crises tend to throw up previously perhaps dormant um, imbalances between countries and that changes the bargaining position of some countries uh, vis others, right? And this was definitely the case in the Euro crisis where you had the um, net creditor countries, so Germany and a couple of the Northern countries, Netherlands, Austria, um, Slovakia, very, very firm on um, not granting any debt relief, not discussing haircuts or um, sovereign default for Greece in that case, and in fact, uh, enacting these, uh, making these countries sign memoranda that 
in the Greek case, lent them a whole bunch of money under conditions that made that money impossible to repay. So the reform packages that were enacted as a result of that kind of politics did cause an unbelievable amount of damage. And in some cases, as the Greek case, it's hard to see how living standards can really recover in the coming decades, that kind of shock. But you might treat Greece as a sort of a, an outlier. And you shouldn't, and this is my sort of, my, my slight pushback, you shouldn't quite absolve the individual governments of those countries that suffered most, you know, Spain being one of them, but also Italy, from responsibility. I mean, they were quite enthusiastic as well, at least um, when, you know, the, the, the center-right party in Spain was in power. There's a common cause, yeah, there's common cause between German, German, the German corporate sector and German conservative elites and uh, yeah. their, their counterparts in other countries. And I also tend to push back against the idea of German hegemony, um, curiously perhaps, because I just talked about how, how they were the driving force behind the austerity politics of those years. But it should be said, again, they're not alone. And they, they have been recalcitrant to the main arm of European economic policy making and monetary policy from the very beginning. So they have not, they didn't gain presidency of the ECB via Weidmann, the head of the Bundesbank. It was, of course, first Trichet and then Draghi, who then, in his capacity as president of the central bank, saved the Eurozone, if you want. Uh, and there have been multiple challenges, legal challenges by the German constitutional court, but also uh, a lot of complaining and rumbling in the in German elites, and nothing has happened. I think that consensus is more more firm than ever. And I think if that's the main policy-making arm economically, monetary policy, then you can't really speak of German hegemony in that sense. Um, but as you say, it, it, it's not really only about missing out on a lot of growth in Germany and sort of condemning large sections of the lower middle class to stagnation and poverty because you don't want to invest even though you can. It's also about exporting deflation and the wrong yeah. kind of reforms to Europe and the world because... Yeah. It's a net, you know, asking everyone to cut back at the same time to run trade surpluses at the same time in Europe. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't cause demand, import demand from the rest of the world. It, it causes the opposite in a way, and that is quite damaging. But so is that. But is that her fate? I mean, can we say that's her greatest political failure? I mean, it was a genuine world historic crisis, which is to say, there was the opportunity, perhaps, for um, for actually. Um, perhaps mounting the beginning of reform to the European Union that could have taken it in a more genuinely integrated direction. Um, you know, I mean, kind of for the sake of argument, say. Um, and she failed it. And so is that, is is it something, I mean, you know, not in just her, I mean, as you mentioned, you know, the German elites, as well as elites in other countries are part of it, but nonetheless, she must bear some of that political responsibility. It happened on her watch, right? Yes and no. I think that economically speaking, it is her her responsibility. She she was in the background, but she underwrote this kind of politics. In its much as she has some sort of um, ideology, it's certainly you know boilerplate austerian you know sound money. But as I said, politically speaking, the crisis wasn't actually the point at which Europe could integrate further. Because my point is that this crisis theory of the eurozone is fundamentally flawed. The sound reforms that lead to spillover, you know, and that down the road lead to more integration are usually made during peace times. And I think that 
this cri- the aftermath of this crisis, because it isn't actually a European crisis and it isn't a debt crisis because those are off the table now that we have activist monetary policy, now there might actually be a, a, a window for reform, oh, yeah. fiscal reform at the European level. Um, but that's exactly what's at stake in the German and, bo- and, and the French election too, actually. So tell us then about um, how you just quickly, because uh, we want to we want to move on, but maybe just quickly tell us about how you what are the what are the prospects or the possibilities for a change in Germany's re- economic relations, um, particularly within the eurozone within the European Union, um, with somebody new at the helm. I think you've alluded to it as already that. And, and this seems to be a view shared on the left as well and, and center-left circles, that it might be disappointing in the sense that even if the Social Democrats win uh, and, and we get a coalition that is you know, amenable to these kind of reforms, nothing much might actually happen. But And that, that might be the case, but it is worth emphasizing that the SPD, the Greens, and the, um, the Linkers, the, the far-left party in Germany, do seem to more or less agree on major policy domains um, and how to reform them, roughly speaking. So they all nominally at least have committed to higher investments. The SPD wants a higher minimum wage of 12 euros. They want investment into decarbonization and they want um, some extension of welfare and more um, more taxation, so progressive taxation of some kind. And that I think it should matter. Again, as I, as I said, it's not clear whom Scholz is bait and switching because he's trying to play both sides, obviously. But there seems he seems to have undergone a transformation sometime throughout his term, um, somewhat changing his mind on fiscal matters. Uh, this is the guy who famously said, you know, a German finance minister is a German finance minister after he ran on a more lefty... <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. campaign. And then he once he was in office, he just turned around and said, you know what? Um, I'm not different than Charles Lucas. I'm just another German guy who doesn't want to spend. Right, right. Um, uh, but but I, I, I should say that um, it, it matters so much what the eventual coalition is. To, start, to answer your question, Philip, um, because, and, and that is to some extent tea leaf reading because regardless of the outcome of the, of the elections, the immediate outcome, anything can go in the coalition negotiations. So you might end up with a coalition that doesn't even include the SPD potentially, right? And we can talk about that if you want to. We might round off there, but um, before that, thought we should talk a bit about climate change because there's some talk in the media that this is this is or should be or was to be the climate change election. Um, and just to look up some of the, I looked up some of the figures on this, some of the polling and whatever, 28% of Germans see climate change as the most important global issue against 18% for the EU average. Uh, Two thirds of Germans believe the government isn't doing enough. 79%, which I thought was quite high, say they're personally taking action against climate change or have done it over the past six months. And then you had the devastating floods this summer where 181 people died. And it seemed like it was all set up to be this kind of big climate change elections with the, with the Greens already kind of um, seeming to uh, pull away a lot of the SPD's traditional support, um, or maybe not traditional support, but in a, at any rate, part of the SPD's support. Um, and now they, in fact, ended up stationed in the high teens. I don't know, how should we understand ecological politics in Germany in, in light of this election? I mean, to what extent has there been much debate around this? Is there any sort of 
sense of polarization over positions on climate change or is it more or less everybody just saying yeah we need to take action a bit faster a bit slower whatever but that's more or less the the substance of the debate so first of all i don't think that uh, in some countries um notably the us of course there's always some fringe that um in, in the mainstream of politics denies that climate change even exists right i don't think there's anyone in the german mainstream who, who would denies climate change and i think right. everyone Things that you know emissions have to be lower quite significantly, and as you say, polls seem to indicate that people are aware that something must be done, and they want their politicians to do more. For some reason, so I was under, I was under the impression that the the floods in Western Germany, um, which of course is the constituency of Armin Laschet because he's, he's the minister president there in, in Northern Westphalia, would you know put climate change at the forefront of the election, but it doesn't seem to have done so. Uh, for some reason, and the, his decline in 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 the rankings uh, are due to his own personality and his own gaffes. That's so. That's quite disheartening. I think it does seem to say that people might be aware of climate climate change and and aware of the need to do something about it, but they're not quite. No one has fully internalized the gravity of the issue that has to be done now, and just how much has to be done. Um, and curiously, the biggest skeptics of what they would call alarmism are in the FTP, so in the yeah. right-wing liberal party. And that's what people have, have you know, noted. They've noted that in, in with regards to possible coalitions and whatever their skepticism is, it might be incompatible with the Greens. And therefore it might put a, you know, it might constrain coalition finding after the elections. As for, you know, climate ambitions among the, the big two parties, if you look at what they've actually done in recent years, so Merkel and, and her party, the CDU, it's, it's quite a, I, I think it's quite a grim assessment. Uh, they've more or less quite blatantly sided with big um, auto producers in Germany. Um, there was this whole kerfuffle about the emissions uh, problem. So not, yeah. not greenhouse gas emissions, but there was... Um, first of all, there were emissions scandals, of course, um, to which the German government didn't, they didn't really take the task their own companies for cheating on emissions tests, but it was then ruled by the EU that you can't allow urban areas to experience a certain amount of um, carbon monoxide um, emissions because the pollution is actually quite deadly. And after a lot of back and forth, the reaction of the German government was simply to, to raise that standard. So they said, we're not going to accept the European standard, we're going to raise ours so that suddenly these urban areas are no longer technically in violation of that standard, which is, I think, the, the biggest, um, the most blatant sort of nod to the big auto producers that, you know, you shouldn't worry about having to produce less polluting vehicles anytime soon. So there's no real ambition. So if we, if we step aside and say, what actually has to be done to reduce the stock of atmospheric carbon as quickly as possible by the state. Nothing is currently suggested in the mainstream of German politics that is nearly enough. Well, and, and indeed, it seems to be going in the opposite direction, right? The winding down of nuclear power plants, the fact that uh, renewables can't take up the slack and therefore the dependence on gas, especially, um, and even coal, um, seems to suggest that Germany is going in the wrong direction. Yes, and, and I, I meant to yeah, I meant to mention the Greens, who are at least you know, calling for very high investment into climate into climate um, into the climate transition, so into renewable energies. 
um, which I think we can take at face value. But on the other hand, they have, it was really them who was most vocal in support of um, decommissioning nuclear power plants, you say, because that was their initial, their, 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 their original um, claim to be a party around one big issue was nuclear energy. Yeah, that's why they came into power, and, and that that has sort of been done with. And unfortunately, there's no sign that they'll ever actually put them back online, let alone build new ones. And that will actually make it very hard to transition cleanly yeah. to. And it ties, it ties into the geopolitics of Merkel's um, uh, time as chancellor because of the controversy over the Nord Stream gas pipeline, the um, gas pipeline the Russians are constructing to get around Ukraine. Um, which goes through the Baltic and the North Sea and around that region. Um, and uh, the closeness between uh, Merkel and Putin, for which he's been criticised about breaking kind of um, solidarity within the Western camp and so on. Could you tell us a bit about that um, and uh, how that has been seen in Germany among German commentators within uh, the German elite? Yeah, I think what that means is that, um, yeah. I mean, has she been criticised within Germany or is the German um, elite behind the, the pro-Russian gas? Broadly speaking, they're, they're very much behind it. I think that's, there's some rumbling on the far left, um, but they're quite divided in Russia as well, I should say. There's a, quite a, a vocal sort of anti-NATO and sort of implicitly, you know, implicitly i should say i don't want to piss anyone everyone off but um pro-putin sort of um or soft on putin part of the german far left so there isn't that much criticism in the political elites and i don't think that uh, it's a big a big issue in, in public as well and i think the priorities of a big trading power a mercantilist power if you want to call it that um they're not strictly geopolitical and i think there's some there's some sense in which they're trying to, to to play both sides. They're trying to have their cake and eat it. They want to continue this, you know, fairly important and lucrative deal, um, but they don't want to. At the same time, they want to signal that they're part of NATO and committed to um, NATO expansion and that they're America's allies. And I think there's a delusional belief that they can do that and that they can get away with this. And I think it's just one of those geopolitical issues that they're. They're trying to ignore and they're kicking the can down the road because resolving it would be quite difficult internally for them because they do very much depend on this energy because they're not they're not capable of or they've wasted time in sorting out their own domestic energy mix, so to say. So if they had invested much more into renewable, they would be less, far less concerned with this sort of stuff, and it wouldn't have the geopolitical ramifications that it does. Right. Um, very good. I think we might have to leave that here. Um, but that's been very interesting. I did want to finish off, though, uh, Dominic, by by asking you, I mean, for all that this is maybe uh, somewhat of a continuity election, despite uh, this very important figure, Merkel, leaving the scene, um, what your prognosis is? Do you actually, I'm just going to come out and say, what's your bet? What, what's going to happen? What, what's the emerging coalition and what, uh, what, what country's flag will be, rep will, <laughs> will represent the colors of that coalition? Um, if listeners don't know that the talk is either of a Jamaica one or a Kenya one or a, uh, or a Germany flag or, uh, anyway, so representing the colors of the parties, what, what, what is your shout? Okay. So it's a big disclaimer. This is obviously, as I said, tea leaf reading, but we don't know what will come out of the end. Uh, people, I think, are broadly speaking of a traffic light coalition, so 
the SPD, the Greens, and the FDP. So that's the aforementioned right-wing Liberal Party. One reason to believe this is because the FDP has very violently signaled against it, strategically speaking, because they can't if they if they if they actually you know said they're amend- they're prepared to do so under certain circumstances, they would lose votes to the CDU. And because they're openly against it, it might be that they're preparing for that eventuality. And they've also recently started to distance themselves from the debt break. And uh, but they may be preparing for that. Another, another reason is that um, some of the alternatives, so a Kenya coalition, for instance, uh, led by the CDU, or Jamaica coalition, led, which is a CDU-led green FTP, so a black, green, yellow coalition, without the SPD, is also not in the books because whatever happens, they say the EU will lose quite big and there'll be a, the impression they don't have the mandates to lead a government. So they might be quite content with going to, into the opposition. For a third reason too, and this is my, my, my third main point, because it's quite clear that Armin Laschet will probably resign because he will be deemed a failure. And the, his, his, you know, his, his rival is, is Markus Söder, the... the um, head of the CSU, which is the Bavarian wing of the CDU. And what they really care about is the Bavarian election, which is in two years. And so they might think in order to win the Bavarian election, we have to be seen as a vocal opposition party hating on the SPD. And so he might, if he becomes the new president of the CDU, might not actually want to go into power. That for me speaks in favor of a traffic-like coalition, but of course it's, it's there's no precedent for any of this, right? I mean, it's very fragmented and more than it's ever been so we have we really have no idea to be honest all right very good um that's all to look forward to the the elections on uh, sunday the 26th of september and we will be back next week with uh looking at well what happened and some of the deeper uh, changes that might be ongoing because we will be welcoming back Wolfgang Strick um, and that's an episode to look out for uh, towards the end of next week uh, at the same time we've got our generation series okay Boonger the problem of generations coming out the first episode uh, is out this week the next one it will be out next week so look out for that and that's it from us for now catch you later bye-bye Yeah, it's, it's, but you were right. I mean, it's, it's completely fucked. I mean, they <laughs> they put themselves in this themselves in this position, and nobody knows why. If you could sum up the entirety of German politics and European politics, it's just self-inflicted wounds yeah. over the last twenty decades, like making yourself from the most prosperous part of the world to a much poorer part for no particular reason. Well, I suppose. I mean, I assume they they just they feel like they can't do nuclear. Um, and thus they need the Russian gas to make, you know, to make up for it. So for the shortfalls and the unreliability of renewables. So, I mean, that's the way I read it. I just read it as kind of uh, necessity, even if kind of self-imposed. Um, but maybe there's, yeah. some, maybe it's, there's more going on. Maybe um, I spoke to Emmett Penny, who runs uh, a podcast and uh, kind of follows all this energy politics. And he mentioned he wouldn't be surprised if Gazprom was um, uh, kind of uh, giving, supporting, covertly supporting Greenpeace in Germany, because obviously their interest is uh, mm-hmm. in ensuring that Germany doesn't go nuclear now. So, Oh, they totally do that. I mean, climate change deniers in the US, like big corporates have also covertly supported uh, 
uh, certain climate change because they, they, they want to like they want to confuse the audience and that they, they at the same time recognize climate change as sort of a problem but then at the other time they try to they undermine everything to you know they, they support a carbon tax for instance publicly because they know a carbon tax will never fly and therefore um, they can undermine every other green vertical um, you know, policy yeah. reform because the carbon tax thing sort of sucks out the energy, uh, the oxygen from every, everything else. It's very, it's quite clever, and I'm pretty sure they do that in Germany too. Mm-hmm.